it is dumping snow outside right now. I'm going to read to you from Psalm 69, starting in verse 19. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Dear Heavenly Father, there are a lot of Christians and Americans right now that are feeling scorned and disgraced and shame, and um, I pray they can know your son Jesus, his hope. He's my Redeemer and Savior, and um, Lord, I just pray for their eternal eternal souls so they can know you and that uh, you keep hope alive. Jesus, you are alive. Amen. Thanks, David. I am thirsty. We'd expect him to be thirsty. He's had several hours of pain and torture and uh, hanging on a cross trying to breathe. We'd expect him to be thirsty. That's not the surprise. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. We expected to say, and because he was thirsty, he said, I'm thirsty. But he says it's to fulfill the scriptures. How is that? How is that? Welcome to DCC for those of you that are visitors. Thanks for joining us today. We would expect you to be snowing. You're godlier than a lot of our people who are up on the mountain. No, I'm just teasing. Glad you're here. We are in the middle of Lent. We're getting closer to the end now. And um, we're doing a series, Joining Jesus Outside the Camp. And um, that comes from Hebrews 13. We were in a series in Leviticus, and we were calling it The Love Story. That may surprise some of you that Leviticus is a love story, but it is. Because Leviticus is the one book that captures the uh, theology of the Old Testament. So we would expect it to find it in Jesus' life and all throughout the New Testament, and we do. So we finished with Leviticus 13 and 14, where it says those who were unclean or defiled or whatever had to go outside the camp until the priest declared them clean. Then they had to, off, had to offer up something, a sacrifice to get back in the camp to rejoin community, and then another sacrifice to get back into the, the uh, tabernacle, temple, or synagogue, wherever they were, to... Um, come back into the presence of the Lord. So it was a time of rejoicing when they came back from outside the camp. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus had to go outside the camp to atone for our sin. Let us therefore go outside the camp and join him in, uh, in join him in the disgrace that he bore on our behalf. So I figured the best way to do that is to go stand at the foot of the cross and listen to Jesus. So for all of these Uh, weeks of Lent, we're looking at the sayings of Jesus. He said seven things on the cross, and all of them are theologically significant. So this one is too. I am thirsty. It's obviously a little bit more than he's thirsty because he did it so that scripture would be fulfilled. And we have to stop and take the time and say, how is that? What scripture is being fulfilled? Now think about where we've come. My basic argument is that 
When you look at everything that Jesus said on the cross, that captures our entire theology. So look at where we've come. On Ash Wednesday, we talked about, Father, forgive them. Remember the setting? He's on the cross. He's in a lot of pain. He's hanging because the cross was as much about asphyxiation as torture. So every time he breathed, he had to stand up. And so eventually, you get tired and you just can't do it anymore. And so he's looking out and Matthew makes sure we understand that all of the key groups are mocking him. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, the multitude, even one of the criminals. And uh, last week we talked about, um, welcome to that one in just a minute. So in the middle of that, he talks to all these people. He's looking at them and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So we have an example of life. Life comes in forgiveness. That's where it comes. Then the next week, the first Sunday of Lent, we talked about today you will be with me in paradise. So one of the criminals was mocking him, and the other criminal rebuked that criminal and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's asking for something in the future, and Jesus surprises him with something in the present, today. Today. In fact, in about two hours, after we're both dead, we'll be together in paradise. There's the idea of hope. Paul expounds on that in the Corinthian epistles, absent from the body, present with the Lord. You have nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. You will never be alone. When your moment comes, you'll never be alone. Um, when it's time to be with Jesus, I'm sure you're going to be with somebody and the Lord's going to walk up and say, come on, take your hand, it's time to go. Then you're going to go. And that's hope, and we see that on the cross. Then he says uh, he's getting closer to the end. He looks down and sees his mother, and uh, he calls her a woman. And uh, it was the job of the firstborn son to take care of the mother if the father had died. And so he said, Mother, behold your son, the beloved disciple. And he said, Behold your mother. So he took care of his mother. There we have a picture of love. Even at the very end, with all the pain and the agony that he's going through, he stops and remembers his mother. And that's a good sign because then he said just a little bit later to a couple of days later to the disciples, I will never leave you or forsake you. I'm not going to abandon you. You don't have to worry. And he has a picture right there. In the worst time of his life, he remembers his mother. Then last week we looked at Matthew and Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we use the word there, empathy, because he relates to us. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So I argued last week that he, everything he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. So even all the miracles he did, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he set the example so he could then say to the disciples, all that you've seen me do, you're going to do greater things. So every miracle he did, they did as well. You see, you don't have to be God to do miracles. You have to know God to do miracles. So he lived life under the power of the Spirit um, so that he fulfilled Hebrews where Hebrews says we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. And so uh, he now empathizes. He understands us because we have to live that way. But when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a quote from Psalm 22. And we argued last week that Matthew, uh, Psalm 22 is one of the key psalms to lay out his argument. In fact, in the crucifixion narrative, he makes a point of verse after verse highlighting Psalm 22. So Psalm 22 is fulfilled in Christ. And today we're going to argue that John, 
When he said, I am thirsty, use Psalm 69. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But he has empathy. And so the concept of God forsaking them is something that we all go through. Every one of us has been through, I'm guessing, some level of, of distress that's deep enough for us to say, why me? Why me? Where are you, God? How come you're quiet? That's a routine thing that I hear as a pastor. Where's God when I need him? Okay. And God is still there. He hasn't left you. He just gets really silent. Okay? And I used the picture last week of I'm in a hallway in my house and here's a corner. And I'm looking around the corner, looking at my two-year-old toddler, just proud as can be watching and wondering what they're going to do. Because that's when their faith gets tested when I'm not there. They're perfectly safe. They're under my will. They just don't know I'm there. And that's what I argued was last week. That's why Jesus can show empathy because God is still there. Now, I don't believe there's a schism in the Trinity. I don't believe God turned, it back, turned his back on his son. I think just like Job, it's just the opposite. He's up, in, he's up there watching, proud as can be, knowing his son is going to live out his faith to the end. He's just quiet, and that's Jesus' chance to demonstrate that his faith is real. He's on mission. He's going to accomplish it no matter what. So today we're looking at, I am thirsty. Now remember where Jesus is. He's been on the cross for quite some time. He's been scourged, bleeding. He's been tortured. His thirst would have been paramount. It would have been part of the torture. That's on purpose. He's been humiliated, shamed, mocked. That's the context for him saying, I'm thirsty. So at one level, it does remind us of his humanity but there's something much deeper going on. The passage gives us lots of clues, starting with Scripture had to be fulfilled. So there's something very significant happening here, and so we're going to take these things and look at them and try to figure out what that is. Because just after this, at the end of the paragraph, when he had received the drink, he said, it is finished. We're going to look at that in two weeks. We're not going to talk about that one today. But he had to fulfill the mission that he was on. In spite of the deep pain, he had to fulfill the mission. And, and you're going to do the same. And we'll come back to that a little bit later on this morning. So there's several complex things going on here um, in this scene. John concludes many things that he started earlier. So we're going to take a look at this. You see, he's sending us a message. He's giving us a picture, if you will. He is showing us what it means to carry out his theological purpose And that's a question that we all have to ask. But what is that purpose? If I could change one thing, one thing in your lives, it would be for you to actually believe that what you do in life matters. It doesn't bother me what your career is. And honestly, I've said this several times, it doesn't matter to me what your sin is. The only reason I'm interested as a pastor is to know how to guide you. Not because I'm fascinated with your sin. Every one of you struggles with sin. That's just a product of being a human in a broken world. That's not what's important. What's important is that each of you stand as a representative of the kingdom in wherever you are. It doesn't matter if you're fixing an electrical system in a house. It doesn't matter if you're a pharmacist. It doesn't matter if you are a realtor and you sell real estate. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you drive a truck. What you do is significant because you represent the kingdom and somebody is watching. 
we have a term for that. Um, it's the difference between practice and praxis. I'm giving you your money's worth. That's a good Greek word. So now you know another Greek word. You know agape. Now you know praxis. Okay? Practice and praxis. Here's the difference between the two. <clears throat> Anybody can have a food bank. We have several uh, secular organizations that have food banks. And we have one too. So what's the difference in our food banks? Well, at one level, they're practice. We all do it. But there's another level that's unique to the spirit. It's called praxis. And that's when your very behavior demonstrates your belief in what you're doing. And that's what Christians can do. So if you're fixing a broken pipe, right then and there, you are Jesus incarnate to somebody. You are the kingdom right then and there. So whatever you happen to be doing, it doesn't matter to me what, you, what your job is in life. Okay? It has great honor because your life matters. That's called praxis. When you begin to believe, actually believe that everything you do is reflecting the kingdom to somebody, now you have significance and you can see it because what you're doing is important. And not only that, but you may be the only person that's going to reveal that in a person's life. I think of God, honestly, as a, as a cosmic traffic cop. He's going to route to you the people that you need. In fact, the best person he can put in your life is your enemy because they expect to be treated terribly but what they don't expect is for you to turn the other cheek and love them. That's a surprise. So if God really wants to get the attention of your enemy, the best thing you can do is route him right into your life, and then you get a chance to live out the gospel. I've asked the question more than once, how come you don't share your faith? And, and you're all terrified. You're all terrified you're going to be rejected. I've been a couple of times, but most of the time, no. You know, you're going to get that one guy who can out-argue you into a corner. No, that's who I get. Because I'm educated for it, I love for it, I have the personality, and I love it. I love to get the person that wants to argue. That's, that's one of my favorite people to get. So everybody that you're around, you're there for a reason. It's not coincidental. If I could change that one thing so that you actually believe, there's no such thing as coincidence. That as a church, we've hit a grand slam. That's part of the purpose behind what Jesus is doing here. He has to fulfill his mission and complete scripture. So we're going to figure out what that is. So John gives us several clues. One of them is water. It's an irony uh, that Jesus is thirsty because earlier on, remember when he's at the, with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, that uh, he's the one that brings water that quenches thirst, but yet he's thirsty in John I'm going to read John verse 4.13 first. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. In fact, the water I give them will become in them a spring of living water that wells up to eternal life. It's going to overflow. You ever been to a big fountain in a big city? Right? You could stand at the pavilion or the courtyard and watch it. What happens if you get too close to the fountain? You get wet. This is the picture, is that you have the Spirit of God, and that Spirit begins to overflow like a fountain, and the people around you get wet. So one of the things that we see in John is that the Spirit is captured by this metaphor of water. 
So Jesus is the one who quenches thirst, and yet he's thirsty. And it's kind of ironic because the more we taste, the more thirsty we are for more. And we want more and more and more of it. So his water quenches all thirst. But all throughout John, the water becomes a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. In fact, if we back up to John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. This is one of the first conversations he had. He says to Nicodemus, we were told Nicodemus is one of the great teachers in Israel. He's one of the top people, the most well-trained. And he comes to Jesus at night and he says, um, no one can... um, no one can do the signs that you're doing unless they're from God. And then Jesus surprises him. Um, you have to be born again. And he goes, what do you mean by that? You have to be born again. And right in the middle of this, Jesus answers him in verse 5. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. Okay, so what's he talking about with water? A lot of discussion in scholarly circles on what that is. I think it's simply a metaphor. Ezekiel 36 and 37 are two pictures of the new covenant. Okay, now pause. Remember what I said in Leviticus. Leviticus is a blueprint. It's not a building. It's not a structure. It's a blueprint. You got the symbols for the electrical, for the HVAC, the plumbing, all of that. But it doesn't become a building until some builder comes along and builds the house. And so Leviticus is the blueprint for the new covenant. When the Spirit comes, this image is used all throughout the New Testament, he builds the house or the temple. Both Peter and Paul say we're living temple, spiritual temple, living house, spiritual house. And so the building gets built. So it's all about when the Spirit comes, that's the new covenant. So in Ezekiel 36, he says when the Spirit comes, he will be like cleansing water. He will clean you. That's why Jesus can say in John 13 when he's washing their feet, you're already clean. That's a picture of you. You just need your feet washed. When you mess up and sin, just say, God, I was wrong. I'm sorry. That's cleansing your feet, but you're already clean. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he cleanses you. He cleans you. And that's a picture of what's happening. It's interesting the chapter before this in John 2, he has the wedding of Cana. He shows up and they run out of water. That's where he turns the water into wine. It's the first miracle where he displays his glory. You may remember they run out of wine. So he says, well, go get the, uh, he doesn't say what we expect. Go get the vessels that hold the wine. No, he says, go get the, go get the six stone water pots that are used for cleansing. They had to wash their hands when they came in. Go get the dishpan. That was an indictment against the way the Pharisees were using the ritual of cleansing. So right off the bat, he challenges them and goes right into John 3 and 4 where he talks about when the Spirit comes, you'll be clean and the water will overflow. So this is a metaphor here when he's talking to Nicodemus. Unless they are born of water, that's the Spirit in the Spirit. He's letting him know. Water is a metaphor. Then when you get over to John chapter 7, um, he says in John chapter 7, this is on the latest, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's at the festival. So on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, everybody's there. This is one of the festivals where all the Jews had to gather from around the world. So he's got a big crowd. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. 
That's very similar to what he said in John 4 about the, it's going to well up. But then John says, by this he meant the Spirit. So in John, all throughout John, water is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. So now when we go back to John chapter 19, there's a very interesting passage here. In John 19, 34, you're all familiar with it. He's now dead. Um, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear. And guess what? There's a sudden flow of blood and water. Okay, think about the metaphor of blood and the metaphor of water now. Blood is a metaphor for the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. Water is is a metaphor for the spirit. And there it comes. So at the end of his life, I think what he's saying is, this is how it came about. He, Jesus had to become thirsty in order to provide this water to us. But then there's another clue, and that's the concept of the hyssop. We read 28. Let me read John 19:28 again. Later knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Here's the next verse. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. So hyssop gives us another clue. Um, This is only in John, by the way. John's the only one that records this. Hyssop was used to sprinkle the blood in Exodus 12 on the doorpost. The Passover, the last great miracle that he did before the Exodus, when they, they took the Passover lamb, they sacrificed a lamb, dipped hyssop in the blood, and they put it on the doorpost. So hyssop became connected with the Passover very, very quickly. Okay, And I think this is an allusion to uh, Jesus as the Passover lamb. This is used nine times, I think, in John. It's all throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, in John, which is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he eats the Passover dinner on Thursday night. And then on Friday, he becomes the Passover lamb on the cross. And John points the way toward that. We're going to see this one more on Easter. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how John starts. And he concludes with the Passover lamb. And hyssop is a clue to that. It's interesting in Hebrews, have you noticed, by the way, all the way through, we keep going to the Old Testament And then we come back to the New Testament and we also often end up in Hebrews. It's all connected. It's all connected. In Hebrews 9, here's what he says about hyssop. Hebrews 9, 19. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law, that's Leviticus, by the way. That's why we're using Leviticus. So we stopped in uh, chapter 14 where the defiled person is outside the camp. And then we're going to talk through Lent joining Jesus outside the camp. And then when we come back, we jump into the Day of Atonement, which is what Jesus fulfilled. This is not accidental. It's not coincidental. So when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll, and all the people sprinkled them with this water and blood. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. 
Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So Hebrews is letting us know that hyssop was used to sprinkle blood on all the temple utensils as well as the people. And then Hebrews argues, but now Christ has entered the new and perfect tabernacle and it's no longer needed. So hyssop is another clue. So we have water, we have clue, we have the clue of hyssop. So as we're working our way through Jesus' statements, it's becoming clearer and clearer that he is the Passover lamb. That's what we're learning. But then there's a third clue, thirst. Matthew, I mentioned, used Psalm 22 to lay out his argument. And I think John uses Psalm 69. In 69 verse 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar to drink for my thirst. So how does John use 69? Well, he refers to it earlier in chapter 2 when he drove out the money changers. He quotes verse 9. For zeal, your house consumes me. This is in Psalm 69. So he was, he was zealous to fulfill the mission of God. You see, the money changers were put in the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles weren't allowed into the temple proper. It's like if we were today, the Jews would be allowed in here and the Gentiles had to be out there. So what did they do? They didn't want to put the money changers here. They put them out there. And that blocked the Gentiles from getting to the Lord. And Jesus got very angry. That's when he created the whip and started beating them, whipping them, overturned all the tables. And this is the verse he quotes, for zeal, your house consumes me, his zeal to, to serve the Lord. But that's not the end. In John 15, he explains that the world hates them and therefore he's going to send a comforter to guide us through that, that obstacle course of hatred and hostility. And he quotes verse four of the same Psalm. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the very hairs on my head. This is what it means to be a Christian. We will be hated. So Psalm 69 is important to John. John, like Psalm 22, is important to Matthew. And that gives us two different pictures of what's happening on the cross. So I'm going to just take you a whirlwind tour through Psalm 69. not going to put all the verses up here. It's way too long. I'm just going to read to you some of them. And tell me if you find yourself in in any of these passages. The first 12 verses reveal that David, I think it's written by David, David knew he was despised, and it's at some point in his life. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. You ever feel like you're drowning? Here's a metaphor right here. Save me. I sink in the miry depths. There's no foothold. I have come up in the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out, calling for help. My throat is parched. I'm thirsty. Those who hate me without reason, the one I just read, they outnumber the very head, hairs of my head. Then starting in verse 13, he cries out to God for help. His cry assumes that he needs help and that God has thus far not delivered him. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your salvation. Rescue me from this mire. Don't let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me and from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me. Those of you that go to Iron Hour, we've been studying the Psalms, 
And Scott's done a fantastic job of showing us how the Psalms capture the theology of Leviticus and the prophecy in the coming ministry of Jesus all over. And so beginning in verse 19, he comes back and he says again how, how despised he is and how alone he feels. You, Lord, know how I am scorned, disgraced, shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I look for sympathy, but there was none. I look for comforters, comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my blood, in my food, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Boy, is there a better description of the cross? And David went through that. This is what he went through. It's astounding to me how quickly we turn. When my first wife died, in that week following her death, when I was at my loneliest, my deepest hurt, people were saying things like, you just need to learn to rely on the inner strength that Jesus provides. Well, that really comforted me. You know what comforted me? One thirty, one morning, about three or four days after she died, I was alone in the living room, sitting up, just crying my eyes out. I called my best friend. We didn't have caller ID at the time. So I called my best friend. He just woke up, hello? And I couldn't even talk. I just started to cry. And he said, I'll be right over. He knew it was. Hopped in the car and drove over, sat with me for 30 minutes, just put his arm around me and let me sob. At the end of 30 minutes, I had expended the, the, the pain. And he said, you okay now? You think you can sleep? Yeah, okay, see you tomorrow. I left. Never said a word. He just put his arm around me. That's what David's talk about, talking about here. It's broken my heart. For comforters, I found none. Jesus on the cross, where's his disciples? Except for the one. They all scattered. That's what happens. Alone. Beginning in verse 22, David wishes how God would respond to his enemies. This is where he's asking for God to exact vengeance. And God, you deal with them. But then in verse um, 30, David's anguish, and this is the description of Job and many other people, and you. His anguish now turns, now turns toward praise. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. And it concludes... Not at the end, but it is the high point is verse 34. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. This is where he ends up. You see, he's been alone and God, it feels like, has ignored him because God is silent. But as he works his way through it, he concludes with God is God and God is good and all the earth will praise them. And this becomes a picture of Jesus. That's why Peter can use Matthew, I mean, uh, Matthew can use Psalm 22 and John can use Psalm 69 because they have the same message. In the middle of the aloneness, when you feel alone, you are not alone. God is just silent. Remember the story of Job? What did he say to Job, to Satan at the beginning? Have you considered my servant Job? No one like him on the earth. He's faithful. And so he allows Job to go take him apart. It's divine boasting. And so for 38 chapters, they're arguing. And Job concludes with this. Where are you, God? 
If you would really listen to me, you would repent. Because you were wrong. And all of a sudden, a whirlwind and God appears. I love the older language. He appears out of a whirlwind and says to Job, you wanted an audience? You got it. Gird up your loins like a man. I love that. I will ask you and you will answer me. Where were you when I made the earth? Surely you know because you were there. And he goes chapter and a half of question after question after question. And Job says, I was wrong. And God said, oh, we're not done. Gird up your loins for a man, like a man. We're going to test number two. And this is where the whole book is heading. This one statement. He could have said, that was Satan. But he doesn't. He said, would you really annul my judgment to make you look good? That's the question of the book of Job. Would you really annul my decision to put you through this for your own benefit? Would you do that? And Job at that point, his only answer, appropriate one is, I was wrong and I repent. God said, good. You see, that's where every one of you ends up. That's where David ended up in Psalm 22 and in Psalm 69. When God was alone and quiet, God didn't leave him. God just steps back into the shadows, and that's when David's faith becomes real. And so David concludes both Psalms with how great the Lord is, and he knows what he's doing. And every one of you gets there, and that's why I've said over and over again that suffering is the language that we share with the world. You see, when suffering occurs, you've got three choices. The world chooses two, and we choose so maybe the two, but we end up with the first one. And the second and third one is real simple. Denial, pretend it didn't happen. Anger, shake your fist at God, that's Job. Or to turn to the Lord in humility. And whichever path you take, you always end up with turning to the Lord. Always. You see, when he takes you through that, even when you shake your fist, he's not upset. He's not angry. He's not up there wringing his hands. He's up there proud as can be because he knows where you're going to end up. That's how much confidence he has in your faith that wherever path you take, you're going to end up like David and like Jesus. They become models for us. No matter how angry you get, how lonely you get, God's up there beaming because he knows you. And you're going to turn back to him. That's what makes you different in the world. You see, we share the same language called suffering with the world. But what makes us different is we end up praising him. We end up loving him. The world doesn't know how to do that. So the greatest gift God can give to the world is to make you suffer because you become a living picture of what it means for your faith to eventually hold out and turn back to the Lord. That's what Job did. That's what David did. Several of the great people of scriptures, that's what they did. God is proud of you. He knows what you don't know, that your faith is real. You have to learn it. Father, thank you for your goodness. 
Thank you for thank you for being so kind to us. Being proud of us, never giving up. Always knowing the truth about our faith. It's wonderful. We're not deserving, it feels like, but we say thank you because we mean it. Hearts full of praise. It's like David. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, for those of you listening online, thanks so much for joining us today. It's uh, great having you here. And it's good to have the technology that we can do this for you. Uh, this concludes the end of our live streaming service. Have a great day. Have fun in the snow. <laughs>